Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Thursday the 15th of June. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. They need the 20 degrees plus before she can function and start feeding and eating the jellyfish and everything else that she will come across to make her life happy and healthy and be able to go on and hopefully lay a lot more eggs. The government has never really tried to explore what the middle is, you know, to, you know, define the squeeze middle and then, you know, what do they need in terms of support? Like, why are they squeezed in the first place? When you hear stories of people who realise three or four years down the line that they have a an app that they're paying for and they never use. Clearing unused app from your phone or deleting unwanted photos or videos from your laptop can be daunting or tedious tasks, but taking time to manage your digital data is worthwhile, as we discovered on Today with Claire Byrne, when the host spoke to Silicon Republic journalist Lee McGowan. Good morning, Claire. We should do this. Isn't that where we're starting from? Absolutely. I mean, look, these are sort of problems. Everyone has them, and I'm no, I'm no exception myself. The longer you leave this type of issue, the worse it becomes. So the main advice I would give to people is um, the best uh, tip is start now. No matter how bad the problem is, you could always make it a little bit better. Um, if you have a massive backlog, you know, you can deal with that piece by piece. But I think the best advice is start as you mean to go on. So for people who don't have some sort of you know, method for managing all their data, um, making a basic system now will make things easier. And then you'll have the time to sort of you know, fix whatever backlog you have into the future. And that's good for consumers or um, for businesses as well. And where should you store all of this stuff, the photos, the videos, the emails? Well, that's uh, that's up to the individual, I suppose. There's lots of different options. I mean, people are most people are very happy storing it on, you know, their main sort of their main things they use, your know, phones, computers, laptops, that kind of thing. Um, there's always things that can be stored on email. There's plenty of cloud data storage as well, things like Google Drive and Dropbox and all. Um, I think it's up to the individual based on how often they're using certain, you know, applications. If they need it constantly, it makes more sense that it's a bit easier to have. Or if they're just storing something that they may need years down the line. The main thing I would say is that um, it's always good to have multiple places um, where you're storing your data. But also then not to be too complicated, not to have 50 different places. Know where all your data is, have it easy to access, but have it backed up. And That'd should, be the should you pay for it? Do you have to pay for it? Again, I would say it depends on the individual. There's lots of good free options out there that give plenty of space. So for most people, I would say, you know, basic cloud storage options are free up to a certain point. You know, 25, 30 gigabytes of storage would be good for handling, you know, endless amounts of photos, a good few videos, documents, that kind of thing. If you're trying to store lots and lots of bulkier kind of data, it might make sense to have a subscription. Um, you could always go for multiple options that are free, but again, that's a bit more um, more passwords to manage, more data sets to manage. So it's on the individual. Um, I'd say when it comes to a business, you absolutely should have um, a subscription because there's extra benefits that come with the likes of an enterprise monthly subscription as well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, additional security. Exactly, additional security. Now, again, this all goes down to the individual, but I would say people should always take a few measures when it comes to storing their data, you know, to make sure it's secure. Biggest issues that can happen for businesses, it's true for individuals as well, but particularly businesses, if they if there's some sort of cyber attack, all their data is in a single place, easily accessible. Maybe they're, re- they're reusing passwords. So once they get hacked, and those files get encrypted, 
they have no backups. And then they have to pay a ransom or comply because there's only they can do. The business fully stops without it. And for a small business, that can be that could be a debt, you know, sentence. So I would say it's always important to have multiple places of backups. There's a three to one system for businesses that should be followed. You should have three different locations for your data uh, in two different kind of forms of media. And one should always be off site, away from the internet, away from your regular storage systems for, um, for individuals not to be that advanced okay but. so so for individuals and this takes us back to our starting point if you have thousands of photographs on your phone you've got to clear those Lee otherwise you may be in a situation where you have so much data going on that you're having to pay for it to be stored and, and what you're saying is you shouldn't really as an individual need to pay for storage personally I would say no Unless you unless you have massive, massive amounts of data, I think it's far easier for people to make a couple of different accounts on a couple of different, you know, cloud storage options. Or to, if they really want to actually pay for something, get something like a big hard drive. That way they can have something completely secure and separate from the internet. If it's not too risky for cybersecurity, just the likes of regular photos, yeah, having multiple accounts is fine. All you have to do then to avoid a subscription is make sure you have you know, somewhere secure that you've written down your passwords, your emails, you know where all your data is. That's the only issue. You don't want to forget six months down the line, oh, which which email address was I using for which application? Where are my photos gone? If you can just have a simple solution to, you know, document where all your things are, you can complete your voice subscriptions mm-hmm. with and a few different accounts. People might be familiar with those apps that will keep all of that information for you. So the email address and all of the passwords. Are you in favour of those? I would say within limits, again, the likes of, you know, your uh, browsers have the option to store your passwords very easily. Um, I think it's a little bit risky personally, because in the, you know, unlikely event that you do get some sort of hack or security breach, you've just made the job easier for the hacker to go through all your different files, especially if some, if individuals are reusing passwords. And I think it's far better to have your passwords stored somewhere else you know where it is, you know how to access it, you know where you can find your passwords. Keeping it online, I just think is a little bit risky. And I'd also be wary about giving passwords to the likes of a third party management thing. So that's my personal view. Um, Again, it's up to the individual. It definitely makes life a bit easier, but I wouldn't necessarily make life uh, safer. I'm wondering, are you suggesting we should write them down? I think despite all the advancements in text, I think you can't go wrong with good old pen and paper for certain things. <laughs> Always handy to have a folder of your most important documents. I mean, again, it's great to have, you know, everything saved on the cloud, everything saved on mobile. In the rare event you've lost these things, you know, your most vital data, your passwords and any personal information that you need to remember. Um you can't can't go wrong with a folder, I say. That's, so, that that old trips always work. I, I think most of us will have signed up at some stage to brands and companies, maybe to get a discount, and you're still getting the emails from them with all of their special offers. And your email provider helpfully puts them into another folder for you, and you just ignore them. Do you think that we should just unsubscribe from those, or can we continue to ignore them? Again, I'd say it's up to the individual. If, like myself, um, I think my spam folder has become um, almost too big to handle in the back of my head now. There's thousands and thousands of emails. If it's something that's becoming an issue for you, I would say yes, there's always options if you scan through these emails that you can click an unsubscribe function. Um, most of these spam emails thrive on the fact that people just forget about them. And then they just keep flooding your database, keep flooding your emails. Um, 
again, it's one of those problems. It keeps getting bigger, but if you take a step now, you're going to make it a lot much easier for yourself in the future. Um, that's true when it comes to spam emails. It's also an important one when it comes to subscriptions because people have a tendency to, you know, sign up for a free trial for something and then they forget a month or two later that they're paying a monthly subscription. And you hear stories of people who realize three or four years down the line that they have a an app that they're paying for and they never use. Mm -hmm. So it's always important for people to just keep an eye on that every so often. So you often. need to go in and check that. Is there an easy way to get rid of the uh, photographs that you don't want, the videos that you don't want that you have stored, particularly on your phone? Or do you just have to go through the pain of sitting down and going through each one? Well, I would say when it comes to documents and the like, you know, or maybe applications that you wouldn't use too often, there are a good few functions out there. There's a few apps that you can get, um, sort of cleaner tools that can go through your system and say, oh, well, you haven't used this in a very long time. Do you want to delete that? It kind of simplifies yeah. the process for you. When it comes to photos, you can do the same logic, but obviously you don't want to be in a scenario where you lose a very sentimental photo. What if it's the last copy you have of that kind of photo? Yeah. I think the best option is if you want to get it out of your phone, move all the photos to somewhere else, some new, you know, kind of cloud storage, and then you can have a quick scan through and see which photos you want to get rid of and which ones you want to keep. That I don't know about you, but I have years worth of photos stored on my phone. And that was Lee McGowan from Silicon Republic on Today with Claire Byrne. The COVID-19 vaccination programme is pausing for the summer months. So if you're planning to get your booster, you might want to book an appointment. And Dr. Colm Henry, Chief Clinical Officer with the HSE, had the details on Morning Ireland when he spoke to Anya Lawler. Yes, we're winding down the spring booster campaign, as you uh, highlighted there, to enable a three-month gap that's necessary between the spring and autumn booster so we can direct that booster vaccine at the most vulnerable groups. And that three-month gap is in line with NIAC advice. And those groups uh, that are currently eligible for the spring vaccine programme, those aged 70 and older, those aged 50 and older in residential care facilities, and those who've, uh, whose immune uh, system is suppressed or some, uh, working in such a way that they don't get an optimum response to the vaccine. And so far, we've seen over 210,000 people from these groups take the vaccine up an uptake of about 32%. We're urging any remaining people to come forward so we can leave that three-month gap between now and when they'll be getting an, an autumn booster in line with wider groups in, in, in October onwards. Uh, yes, and that autumn booster, uh, we'll come to that in a moment. But again, for, for older people, for people uh, in those categories, a bit more vulnerable, as you say, We've all, you know, we're going around in the sunshine and enjoying mingling people looking forward to their holidays. That's why you're saying for those groups, it would be an added level of security. Yes, and we're in a much more robust position now in Ireland, thanks to the huge uptake. We're the country with the highest level of primary vaccination uptake in Europe at 96.5% of the eligible adult population. And that has enabled us to have the kind of protection we have between the vaccine afford, the protection afforded by the vaccines and that by naturally acquired infection. We have a very high level of population immunity now. But, it's, but vigilance is important, especially for those who are vulnerable to serious illness as a consequence yeah. of COVID-19. That's why we're directing the spring booster campaign at these groups and in line with NIAC advice with wider groups, um, including those aged 50 50 or older from autumn onwards. And uh, COVID hasn't gone away, of course. There's a there's a milder version, isn't there, but a new version that's been sweeping China at a rate of knots at the moment. Well, we have a very robust surveillance mechanism here in this country and we pool our information from other European countries. We're constantly looking at trends, at new variants. 
But as I said, Anya, we're in a much more robust position than we were uh, when you go back only a short number of years ago when we had no population immunity either from from natural infection. So we're in a much better position than we were a few years ago. And will will it be a tweaked vaccine that will be on offer to the public in the autumn or, or will it be the same vaccine as we've had up to now? That's possible. The regulatory agencies, that's the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, US and the EMA in Europe are constantly looking at the vaccines we have, bivalent in other words, and see how they match with the circulating variants. The FDA is meeting in coming days to assess the suitability of current vaccines for the current circulating variants. And that advice is constantly leads to feedback through to vaccine programmes, design of vaccines, and ultimately the provision of the best suited vaccine to circulating variants in line with the, the evolving seasonal campaigns that we're, we're now designing. And that was Dr. Colm Henry on Morning Ireland. Evelyn O'Rourke spent time with volunteers from the Charity Path, a service that offers basic food supplies to those in need in Dublin city centre and beyond. And Evelyn joined Claire Byrne with this report. So Evelyn, you went to Inchicore, you met the Path team there with the van. They were getting ready to start the food service. What do they offer people? You can't miss the van. (laughs) It's lovely. It's so bright on the road, you know. It's just such a simple, straightforward service where they bring these supplies, the hot and cold food, into the city centre every Wednesday and Saturday night, feeding people on Grafton Street there on Saturday evenings. And the team that I met up with included Irene, Helen, Pat and the legendary Martin, as you'll hear, who drives the bus. He knows everybody, right? And what really stands out for me, Claire, is when you're with the team, they are constantly constantly scanning as they're driving everywhere looking for vulnerable homeless people they pull up everywhere Martin doesn't care about rules pulls up hands over the supplies and uh, got to meet them as he's saying in Chicor getting ready to head out on their rounds for the night and Martin gave me a tour of the van and then his team member Irene joined in to give some insights too We've at seven o'clock And you come straight to Inchicore? Inchicore So we're here now at the start of your evening It's about what, quarter past eight and Yeah. this is your first stop here Yes sir, and we have three or four people there already And you're giving out bags of food If they want a sleeping bag we have it A tent we have it And a few things Show me that, there. is this in the back of the van? Yeah There's our sleeping bags And we have a few for families Okay For a girl now you're going to meet with two or three kids Okay Right, and we have that for her and nappies and what bits us. do you have for her? Like I can see little pink raincoats and things, is it? Or? Clothes there as well. We have Please. nappies, Please. coffee, tea. Now, so yeah. Martin, this is a typical bag. So yeah. what's in it? It's Coke. Yep. Soap is it. And now we have three or four sandwiches as well. And they're them. all marked ham, egg and yeah, cheese. Yeah. So each bag has that range of the water, which is so important. Yeah, and we have, you know, underpants and women's stuff as well in the women's bag there as well. Okay, so this is the women's bag. It's green and white. Yeah, and we have underpants and underwear and things there for the girls and men there as well. And the demand never stops? Demand, no. You see tonight now when he's there, they'll yeah. be looking for it. We come back empty. And there's the hot meals right now. I'll show you that. Ah, you got the proper storage box here. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the hot meals are in here. Yes, wow. garlic bread. But here's chicken curry, is it? Yeah. yeah. It smells good. Yeah, good, good. What is it about this work that makes you come back again and again and keep going? <sighs> I just like doing it, you know, and you know, you like to help people if you can at all. Like in so it feels like something positive that makes a difference. Uh, yeah, like if just a bit of sandwich or a sleeping bag for a lad and make him happy for the night, like you're doing something good, you know what I mean? We've done your first stop in Inchcore, right? Yeah. And then where are we off to now? We're going to Keys, along, along the, the Keys. Going to go up past Houston Station and up along the Keys. Okay. Chart is important. That's the main thing that, you know, because for some of them, especially the ones that are on the street or in the hostels, they wouldn't have anybody talking to them during the day. 
you know, not one person smiles at you or acknowledges that you are somebody there, a human being yeah, there. Then you turn up and there's a bit of a relationship yeah, and suddenly... Yeah. yeah, for us it's about the chat, you know, checking in with them, are you okay? It's that emotional connection, I think, you know, just somebody sees me. So the team and Martin all set and ready. You all left in Shakur, headed into the city centre. And Evelyn, what was the situation there when you got there? Well, we drove down the quays. Again, Martin, the team scanning the whole time to see if they can spot potential people who might like the service. They know the homeless community so well and they say they can tell as they round the corner for the next destination that the word has spread and more and more people turn up. And there are families there, Claire. I mean, it's mostly people on their own, but there were a few buggies along the way. Younger children there too, collecting bags. All of them supported with the bags of food or extra bits if they need them. And it's all done with such a smile which is so important of course for the team. So here listen to us here as we move up the keys up towards the city centre. You need to hold your nerve with Martin. He springs from the van when he spots someone he can help. So here Arjun tells us more about that service and you'll get a flavour of how busy the service becomes in the city centre. Does somebody have to shop Martin? Yeah. Does he know you now? Actually I don't know him now. I didn't see him this So you'll put the chat on him yeah, and we, we, we get a sense of him, yeah. He wants a hat. Yeah, he's looking for a hat. hat That's a brand well. new sleeping bag. Yeah. yeah. And a bag of food then as well. He's asked for the drinks. And this is a new person for you. You're not yeah, familiar with him. Yeah, haven't met him before. Sure, look. That guy is walking through the traffic, right? Yeah. And for most of us, we'd be quite scared if he came up to us in a car, to be honest. Martin yeah. walks right up to him. Absolutely. Martin just knows somebody like that obviously needs help. And Martin's heart says, let's help. And you know the way we're hearing about the rise in numbers of people coming in who aren't being given official accommodation right have you noticed that yeah well Pat was actually up in Dublin on Saturday weren't you saying there was more foreign nationals the ratio was three four to one that's a change that's a that's a growth massive yeah it's massive we ran out of hot food which we normally would like to give two sandwiches each to everyone but we noticed the crowd was quite extensive but we were only giving out one try and make the supplies last longer right we ran out of sandwiches with seven or eight still in the queue you actually ran out on saturday night we ran out yeah so here we have a family so we have a mom here and a little girl yeah and to have a baby that's only a month old they do have an apartment in, uh, I think, around Sheriff Street there, but it's quite tiny, I think. The likes of these now, if we have them, we'll give them pot noodles, you know, to bring back. Just to, to supplement a little yeah. bit. Hi, yeah. hey, I'm here to uh, follow Martin today. Yeah, well, yeah. What do you think of his work? I know it's brilliant, yeah, it is. He's a brilliant man. He helps everyone he does. Team. He's very good. And what it's do you funny. think of the service? Oh, it's brilliant. You don't get anywhere else, you know, to us. Really? It's a really good like selection. You don't like going anywhere else. But oh, you like man. the food that yeah, you're doing yeah, the dinner? Yeah, the dinner. And you have a buggy here. <laughs> That's his child, yeah. But oh, cheapest, what's in the bag? Love looking at the bag. Uh, just to help the babies out. Nappies and everything. Yeah, I have another baby at home as well. That's so how old her. is this baby? She's three. She's three, isn't she gorgeous? Yeah. And then people are lovely and nice and not rushed. Other times, just kind of boom, 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 out, yeah. out. Here's your stuff, yeah, go. Yeah, it's like take your time, get to know you and everything they did. And even now, names of the babies. And a service like that it only works if the volunteers are really enthusiastic and you met some more of the volunteers last night Evelyn what did they have to say about what they do? Well they've a really big team back at base as well making the sandwiches and all that and they take in turn to do the Dublin runs so last night I was on the bus with Pat and Helen we heard a little bit of Pat there they've been with the charity for years now and they say they just really enjoy the work they like the way that the culture is to engage with people and chat to them and one of the women talked about that there you know you don't just give them the bags and run they say that the shift flies and they feel that it's a really worthwhile satisfying service but they also talked about those rising numbers that they're seeing with Pat saying there that he's seen a marked increase in the amount of non-Irish nationals coming to them for help. So here Pat and Helen explain more about their work with this charity. 
I worked all day. What time did you start? Very early. I have to leave early because you have the commute up. So So what time did you get home to Port Beach this evening? Six o'clock. And you turned around and got on the bus here and you're back here now in Dublin, didn't you? Yeah. What is it about the work? Why do you keep coming back? I just love it. What do you love? Like, it's hard. It's hard, but when you look at all the people we're helping, you know you're making a a major difference, but it's a small difference. You can see the smiles on their faces. But what about, like you're saying to me on Saturday, running out of food, the frustration around this, does that not wear you down a little bit? Generally, we kind of have enough, but as the weeks are progressing, we're running out of food a lot quicker. Our numbers are growing, and we had well over 300 now on, on Saturday night. We'd normally have maybe two 220, 250, maybe 260 and as the food was getting scarce we had a guy counting them in the queue, like they're all walking away, they all have a sandwich, they all have hot food, they all have a bottle of water clean pair of socks, clean underwear you know it's a small difference but it's some difference. How long are you doing it? Three or four years now I'd say. When you look around you see you have so much, even though you mightn't have so much do you have a roof over your head, you have food on the table your family is safe, you have a job money coming in to pay bills and you come up and you see somebody that has nothing and they're so grateful for a bag with a sandwich and a few bits in it that's enough to keep you coming back and back that is that is yeah just to be able to say you give that little bit back at the end of the week you've helped somebody they mightn't have spoke to anybody at all that day but just that simple do you want hot food that type of thing might make all the difference to somebody that's sitting on the street thinking this is it i've nothing i have nobody to talk to you know, because mental health is a huge issue with the homeless because they have nobody. They don't have friends. Like, they have their own group and they all look out for one another. But what have they? Nothing. Only what they're sitting in. Their families are disconnected. They have no backup system. So that little kind of, how are you? How are you doing? It makes all the difference. Helen and Pat there. So the bus makes its way through the city centre. Then on Wednesday night, last night, parking up at the back of Grafton Street to give out more bags and hot tea and coffee. So when you got there, Evelyn, were there people waiting? Yeah, they certainly were. Yeah, as we rounded the corner, you could see people gathered in that, you know, that beautiful late evening sunshine we had last night. And it was incredibly moving, Claire, because these people kind of, they were stepping out of the shadows as the bus moved up and everybody was so polite to each other. It was really nice atmosphere, actually. Lots of bags being passed around. The runners from Pennies, I have to say, are big hit, lots of runners being handed out. There were some children there and um, one of the mothers telling me that she's come because it's such a struggle for her to make ends meet and she says that Path offer a great service because it's consistent. They know they come every Wednesday and Saturday at a certain time. And just to mention, they are really stuck without a second van. So I, the current one is in dire shape. They can't pull open the door properly. They are running a GoFundMe page and they'd be so grateful if anybody wanted to help out with that. But meanwhile, back at base, it was a busy night there and at the end of the night, Martin had told me they were so busy they cleared out of so much stuff that they would have to restock again we did look around the van and the crates were empty all the clothes were gone all the bits but here are just some more of the voices of the people that I met last night in the city centre getting uh, supplies and services and support from the team I heard the food is good oh the food is gorgeous especially that stew on the uh, Saturday. And you are here with all the family? Yeah, me two kids. Okay, this really helps you. Oh yeah, catch me over a massive hole. It's clean and as soon as you got out, bang, you're in there with loads of addicts. They're around you all the time, you know what I mean? So you're safer inside is what you're saying then? You've got to be locked up then, being on the outside. You have a bed, you have a gym, you have education, you, you do workshops. No stress, no nothing, as soon as you get out. It's safer? Safer, yeah. Martin's the best man that the homeless ever need. And he's just giving you a tent there. And where will you sleep in the tent tonight? If I park up anywhere on Grafton Street or Henry Street, the girls will take it down. So where tonight now will you put it? That'll be safe. Some limway. And it's a pop-up tent, so you can just have it for the night yeah. there. That was Evelyn O'Rourke's report on Charity Path on Today with Claire Byrne.
two-year-old loggerhead turtle rescued off the County Mayo coast earlier this year is currently hitching a ride home on board the Ellie William Butler Yates. And Brian Dobson had this story on the News at One. The naval vessel has departed on a six-week tour of duty in the Mediterranean. Kroger, the turtle, was nursed back to health over the past three months by staff at Dingle's Ocean World and recently deemed fit enough to be released into the wild. We've been speaking to Kevin Flannery, director of Ocean World. I began by asking him how Kroger arrived in Ireland. Kroger was found by the Derosha family, would you believe, on Valentine's Day in February up in Belmullet on a beach, in a windy beach, and she was upside down on the beach on her last legs, as one could say, and uh, they picked it up and they got in touch with us in the aquarium because I've been doing this for over 30 years. Before we had the aquarium in Dingle, I had to keep my bath at home before we rehabilitated them. But anyway, we've been doing it good enough and Terence Dever of Ackle brought it as far as Ackle and I collected an Ackle, brought it straight down and with the veterinary team and the team of Marie and the aquarium, we began to get saline solution into it, get antibiotics and get the temperature risen very, very slowly because with the cold shock, basically these are warm water creatures being reptiles and they have to have 20 degrees plus and the Atlantic this time of the year is not a nice place for them. So mm. we had to get it up and get it feeding. And once that started, once it started feeding, we're quite happy and it was only 700 grams and now it's over a kilo in weight. So you reckon now she's a, she's a good chance of surviving back uh, in the ocean? Absolutely. We're, I'm pretty happy. The team are extremely happy to release her back into the ocean, into the area between the between Cape St. Vincent off of Portugal and uh, Madeiras, that area and the Canaries, because that's where the 10 turtles spend their teenage years when they drift across on the southern part of the Gulf Stream and they spend their teenage years after leaving the Saragossa weed and then they drift down again onto the Canarian current, the Caribbean current, and back after 20-odd years to nest and mm. uh, lay their eggs for their young. And she'd be travelling there in style, Kevin, on board the Ellie William Butler Yates. Yes, she'd be going with, she's on her way at this point in time with the William Butler who left this morning on their military operation for the Mediterranean. And I'm very grateful to the Naval Service for doing this for us and being able to release it back into the water in a few days' time, as I say, back there. It's ideal that she's going with the William Butler years because she's going to the Isle of Inish free for her life. <laughs> and as soon as they get to that water, waters that, that, that temperature, 20 degrees plus, then, then it's, uh, it's suitable to, to release her. It's ideal, to suit, uh, it's suitable because they need the 20 degrees plus before she can function and start feeding and eating the jellyfish and everything else that she will come across to make her life happy and healthy and be able to go on and hopefully lay a lot more eggs in, in the Gulf in later life. Mm. But our big problem is, and the big thing is, by giving nature a helping hand, the same as we have done in the aquarium, that nature can be resilient. And for this lady, her name is Kroger, brave, extremely brave to bear the Atlantic all the way across and get washed up and now survive. So it is a good news story. And and she's just, is, is she two years old, you reckon, at this stage? So still very young. That's extremely young. Mm. Very unusual for them to survive. The other turtles that we found washed ashore 
and along the West Coast people have found uh, the other loggerhead turtles all were dead or had been killed of some form but usually it's hypothermia because as I say our waters in the winter are extremely cold down to five degrees mm. but this lady is exceptional to live at this size and that's why I say we have to give it life back in the and, ocean. And having, having survived this ordeal Kevin uh, I mean she, she could she could live for dozens or more a hundred or more years. Oh, she could at least live for another 100 years and could lay brood after brood and go through the whole routine. But as I say, not alone is their habitat, but their environment because they can't distinguish between jellyfish and plastic. And what we would advise people, look, take home a bit of plastic from the beach, leave nothing else and leave these creatures survive that have been with us for millions of years. Kevin Flannery, director of Dingle Ocean World, chatting to Brian Dobson on the News at One today. Well, we've been hearing a lot about the squeezed middle lately, but who are they and are they the group most deserving of financial help? Financial planner Bob Quinn and Michelle Murphy, research and policy analyst at Social Justice Ireland, joined Claire Byrne to discuss. Uh, thank you, Claire. Well, I suppose that's the thing. There's been no definition. I mean, it, it, it tends to come up before elections. So Michael Noonan defined the squeeze middle back in 2015 as people earning between 32,800 and 70,000, which is a very broad range in terms of, you know, the, the most recent proposals in terms of tax cuts that you mentioned there. And junior ministers, there was no actual definition, although they, they referenced the figure of 52,000. But if you look at the CSO statistics, so if you look at just household income across the board so um, not just households in work but all households the median disposable income in the country is 26,257 so that's one middle if you look at wages so if you're only going to be looking at households and employment then the median annual annual wage from the CSO for 2021 that's the latest figure they have is 41,222 so obviously there's a big gap between those two but you know if you're looking at middle then, you know, those are the kind of figures you need to be looking at. Mm -hmm. And then you target whatever policies you have towards those. But at the moment, what you know, government has never really tried to explore what the middle is, you know, you know, define the squeeze middle. And then, you know, what do they need in terms of support? Like, why are they squeezed in the first place? Well, there might be a a political reason for that, Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose. Uh, Bob, who do you think the squeezed middle is? Claire, it's it's very simple. It's a spectrum. It's not specifically one type of person. And I think this is where the argument is totally wrong. Um, Leo and Fine Gael will talk about a squeeze middle in kind of absolute terms, say, well, it's someone who earns this amount of money. But the cynic in me would say, well, that's because you're appealing to certain types of voters and floating voters, if you like. But what I do in the money advisors is I deal with a broad range of people. And we're looking at lifestyle and position lifestyle. So if you're uh, irrespective of what you earn, let's talk about the pressures you're under, the impact certain policies have on you. Three kids in creche will cost you €1,700 per month. Um, When you have young children, you may typically have a big mortgage if you can get on the property ladder. So the, the squeeze middle isn't one particular person or people. It's a broad spectrum of people that have certain pressures and they're under certain pressures. And policies should be formulated around a position in life and the position you occupy in a certain stage in your life. So then anyone can self-diagnose themselves as being part of this group? 
Well, absolutely. Let, let, let's talk about it in human capital versus financial capital terms. And if we look at it from a human capital uh, uh, term, if you're 42 years of age, three young kids and you're earning X amount and you have a big mortgage. Again, if you're lucky enough to be able to get on the property ladder, you have significant outgoings. You may have very little left by way of disposable income per month. If you are 56 years of age and single and you've paid off your two bedroom apartment, you may have more disposable income than someone who's on six figures in a different stage in life. So if you look at it as in an absolutist uh, perspective, you'd say, well, actually, the person who's on six figures, clearly they're very wealthy and they're doing very well. That doesn't bear out in reality whatsoever. But they've made choices. You know, they, they should have enough money. They've yeah. made choices so that they, they might be feeling the pinch at the end of the month. Entirely up to them. There's a lot of things the people who, as you say, make choices can't control. We can't control the, the cost of childcare. We can't easily control whether or not mortgage interest rates are going to increase. We can't control a lot of aspects to that position in life. The few things that are controllable, fine. But there's an awful lot of things that uh, that, that so-called squeeze middle, if you like, the impacts of government policy with the stroke of a ministerial pen can change everything for that cohort, if you like. So the people that are under more pressure than somebody else, and this shouldn't be a case of, well, oh, well, I'm under more pressure than you, Claire, or Claire's under more pressure than somebody else. It's a case of it's a spectrum. Can we all agree from a, a Social Justice Ireland perspective, from a private financial planning perspective, that there's lots of people that are left with very little at the end of the month? And if we look at it from a okay, spectrum well, perspective... Let, let's see if Michelle uh, agrees yeah. with that, that the squeezed middle is actually a spectrum and the policy should be in place to help all of those people who are dealing with the pressures of mortgages and childcare and rent and so on. I mean, it is absolutely a spectrum, Claire, because, you, I mean, generally look at things through income deciles and try and divide cohorts up that way. But if you're going to focus, for example, on families and employment, I mean, the reality is for that cohort that we're talking about is because we don't provide the services or the subsidised services, things like childcare, healthcare, transport, it means, you know, they they have to pay for all of that through their disposable income. So if you look at enhancing the non-pay returns to workers, and that means substantial public investment in the social wage through things like expanded public services, better public provision of childcare. And we've made some progress there, but we've a long way to go in terms of reducing the cost for families, in terms of reducing the cost for transport, in terms of looking at elder care is another part that doesn't really get talked about, but it does become an issue for families. So how do we look at that? So, you know, that means, as um, Bob said, targeted interventions and what we a lot of the political discussion is on a very broad uh, stroke measure of for example either raising the tax band uh, you know either eliminating or the USC which is a very broad stroke um, which is not going to target yeah, I, you know the, I, I'm the not sure that's what Bob is saying it. and Bob you can clarify this uh, for us because Michelle we whenever we speak you always talk about targeting measures and I'm thinking in particular mm -hmm. of the energy grant where everybody got the yeah. 200 euro uh, three times mm -hmm. and you said that should be targeted. Bob, you're saying that there are people who will be earning good money who are in just as much difficulty as mm. somebody who is on a, a very low salary. Isn't that your point? That's exactly my so, point. So, so therefore, Michelle, he's saying you, mm -hmm. you can't target at people who are on a low income because you'll have people on higher incomes who have three children and who are paying rent who are in dire straits. 
But you can, for example, you can expand eligibility for those families to things like the fuel allowance, for example, expand eligibility for the back to school clothing and footwear allowance, expand eligibility or increase the thresholds for things like the medical card. Those are ways that you can support those families. Because if you look between 2014 and 2023, people might realise it, but there has been significant tax reductions. So just take a single person on 60,000. They've seen their overall tax reduction in that period of 3,540 euro, but they don't see seem to be much better off. Why is that? Because that's not targeted. And the other things that they have to pay for out of their pocket, the cost of that are going up. So the question we have to ask is, is there a better way to support that household beyond a very broad stroke tax reduction that doesn't work? So expanding, using that money to expand that eligibility, to increase those thresholds. And like obviously housing costs are one of the biggest pressures on family at the moment. No matter how much you cut your tax, that's not going to reduce the cost of housing for people. Yeah, I, I- I'm just not sure, though, if I if I would ever expect you to argue in favour of a household which is bringing in a hundred thousand, getting fuel allowance and a medical card. Oh, well, I mean, it's up to government to set the threshold. I mean, certainly from a social justice Ireland perspective, we are focused on those households in the bottom 20, 30 percent who are under the most pressure. But if there are households there, and there are households, for example, who are under pressure in terms of mortgages at the moment, who are on trackers and the rates increases, you know, government, there is a swathe of team of really good civil servants there. If you really want, and, you know, if governments were really interested in supporting those households and families, they would develop policies to do that. You can argue about the positives and the negatives and the financial impact of it. But the way they've gone about it at the moment hasn't worked and has cost a significant amount of money to the exchequer. Do you think that a household, Bob, on 100,000, with all of the pressures that I outlined, should be getting more in terms of state support? Absolutely. <clears throat> I don't approach this in an absolutist term. And I know what Social Justice Ireland does, and it, it, it's it's very good in advocating for a certain type of, um, I suppose, lower income earner, if you like, and uh, those that are on s- social protection benefits. But at the same time, I see day in, day out, and th- this is... The, the people that are on six figures, it's assumed that, look, you're you're rich, you're on six figures. But people that are earning good money oftentimes act up to their income in the sense that a family of five will pay €4,000 from their after-tax income to afford private health insurance, which is the type of thing you're going to do if you get an opportunity to do so. No one's forcing you to do that. Though. No one's forcing you to do it. But at the same time, there are certain, there are certain uh, elements that we will take on if you're in that position. Childcare. Is childcare a choice? Well, if you decide to have a family and you have two or three children, I have three children. Was that a choice? It absolutely was we're paying €1,700 a month Um, but there are issues that we can't control and again I bring it back to talking about it being a spectrum focusing in on uh, only one element within that spectrum doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. and it's doing everyone else that's that that's in a difficult position, a bit of a disservice, because at the end of the month, what do you have left? Is it because you party 24-7? No. Most people that are out there are taking on car loans, are taking on credit union loans, are trying to get on. But there's then also a significant cohort out there that don't have any provisions for the future, that haven't actually contributed to pensions. We don't have an auto-enrollment pension scheme, for instance. We can talk about security then within the spectrum. So so I have a message here. The so-called squeeze middle are those of us who pay for absolutely everything and are entitled to absolutely nothing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. 
There's there's a sandwich generation. Elderly parents, young kids. Talk about nursing home care. If you've got elderly parents, one of them is in a nursing home. It's oftentimes down to the children to make a contribution for that care. And then you're looking at childcare. So again, what can that sandwich generation control? Not a whole loss. They've been beaten up badly at every end of the spectrum, if you like. We all agree every end of the spectrum needs supports. Targeting just the lower end of the spectrum would be okay. a terrible injustice. Bob Quinn and Michelle Murphy on Today with Claire Byrne. Finally, former FBI Director James Comey was on the Ryan Tuberty Show to talk about his new crime novel, Central Park West. We'll let James fill you in on the plot. Yeah, sure. Thank you. It's it's based in Manhattan and it tells the story of a federal prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice named Nora Carlton, my protagonist, who is handling a mob case and not paying attention to a case involving the murder of a former governor that's being prosecuted in state court just down the block. But those two cases slam together in ways she never expected. And so it's about the journey that takes her on, along with her sidekick, who's her investigator named Benny Dugan. And it's the story of those people and takes the readers inside what those cases are really like, because I did those kind of cases. That's right. So you were the state attorney in, in New York and you you know these courtrooms. In fact, and your daughter continues to know these these courtrooms. Tell us a little bit about, you know, even courtroom 318, the significant place in your life. Yeah, 318 is a courtroom, a grand courtroom in the old federal courthouse in lower Manhattan. And it was the place in which my great friend Patrick Fitzgerald and I prosecuted John and Joe Gambino, two major mobsters, for six months when my oldest daughter, Maureen, was a little girl. She was four years old. And when I was working on this book, she was in the same courtroom, now a grown woman and the chief of the violent and organized crime unit, in the same office in which I had worked. And she was on her feet in that same courtroom in a weird crossover of life prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's partner in abusing a lot of young girls. And so the protagonist had to be a woman, and I named her Nora so as not to to embarrass my daughter too much, but she's inspired by my daughter Maureen and my other daughters, and I use her as the vehicle to tell the story. I think I think it's really important uh, to 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 make that point uh, that because you're the uh, proud father of four daughters, uh, so if you didn't put in smart female protagonists in your novel, you probably would be disinvited for Thanksgiving next year. I think that's right, and the advantage of of it being a compilation of all four daughters is if any one of them doesn't like some part of the character, I can say it's based on your sister. <laughs> good one, good one. And I wonder, are your, are, are your daughters kind of thumbing through it going, that's me, that's her, that's me, that's the other one? I mean, have they? is that the kind of uh, filial feedback you've been getting? Yes, they went through it very carefully in draft. And among other things, my oldest, Maureen, pointed out that I had put uh, her office on the wrong floor, so I adjusted that. But I think overall they're happy with the portrayal. Their, their father did not embarrass them. <laughs> well, speaking of, can you remind us what height you are, James? I am six feet, eight inches tall. And when you, as a proud dad, want to stand discreetly in, in the back of the courtroom to see how Maureen is getting on in prosecuting the bad guys, um, how do you achieve that, or is it possible? <laughs> it's funny you should say that because she forbid me to come to the Maxwell <laughs> trial in courtroom 318, telling me 
uh, if you come, Dad, quote, it'll be a thing, mm. which I took, I think she means a bad thing. Mm. And so I, I couldn't go. My much more normal height wife went and gave me the reports from there. I've gotten a chance to watch Maureen in action, and I kind of slip in the back and try and sit in one of the rear benches. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you have some class of disguise, and COVID might have helped, in fact, with the mask in some way, going some way to mitigate yeah. for for everything. Um, let's talk about your wife, if I may, briefly, Patrice. She she is cr- critical to the uh, genesis of, of, of your book. Um, I don't know if there's probably a series, I've, I've no doubt, but tell us about her role in, in terms of con- uh, conception, and ideas-wise, and then execution of the plan. Well, she's the idea person, so it's her responsibility <laughs> to come up with ideas for a story and to pitch a story line. And she has great story vision and she's read a tremendous amount of fiction and crime fiction. So I couldn't do it without her. And then my job is to agree upon that vision and then go off and write it. And then every day get feedback on a Google doc from her, which is easier to get when it's remotely because it's not as painful to me. But then I make adjustments based on that feedback. And then the next day do it again and again and again until it's ready to be read by all of my children. And if you were to be handed those notes and, uh, in, in, and be in the same room as your wife, would, would, would that have caused uh, some friction in your marriage, do you think? No, I think it'd just be more painful for me. I, <laughs> everyone has a different relationship, but I, I go through a process where when I'm corrected on something, I initially deny that she's right, and then my next step is to think she may be right, and then the final step is, of course she's right. <laughs> And it's better if I can go through that process privately. It's uh, less painful. <laughs> and can I ask you uh, what your wife does for a living? She is uh, works with foster children. She's trained as a marriage and family therapist. Yeah. And so there's a lot of work to help uh, kids in distress. Okay. And as a, as a family therapist, I suppose she can on occasion bring her work home with her um, to deal with all of you. Yeah, she's, I always tell people she didn't become a therapist because of me, but it's been very beneficial. Did you, uh, when you were involved with the, as, a, as a state attorney and then later in the FBI, did you find yourself not wanting to read books and related matter to what your job? Or did you, did, did, were you tempted to dip into crime thrillers and what have you? Or, or did you let that just leave Patrice to all of that? I... I not intentionally, but because I found it so hard to think about that in my spare time, my days were filled with crime and terrorism and espionage. It was very hard to watch television programs or read about it, mm. not because authors got it wrong, but because I just wanted to get away from it. And so I really, I, I just before I became a prosecutor in 1987, I read the, the crime thriller by Scott Turow, Presumed Innocent. Mm-hmm. And I really wasn't able to get back to that work for 30 years, probably. And so it was uh, It was after getting fired in 2017 that the farther I got from the work, the easier it became to think about it and then to write about it. And, and the distance is what made the difference. And do, who did you kind of gravitate towards when you were maybe doing a little research or trying to get your, find your groove to, for writing Central Park West? I started by reading John le Carre's work, mm-hmm. I think I read all Le Carre's books, both because he's a legend in the field and also because I, I gather he had struggled with how to make the, the, the fiction accurate, but also exciting. And could he actually hold readers' attention if he depicted it, the spy business, the way he really found it? Because I wanted to tell 
the the actual story about how it works, not make things up except making up characters, but having the procedures be the way they really are. And I, I've tried to do that, and I think it holds the excitement. I haven't had people, you know, I haven't been fantastical in the way I've depicted these cases because you don't need to be to be exciting. Uh, your grandfather was a, a police, a cop, was he? Yeah, he was. A, a, a child of Irish immigrants, he became a dropped out of school in the sixth grade to support his family when his dad was killed in an industrial accident in New York, and then he became a police officer and became the leader of the Yonkers, New York Police Department. Right, classic Irish trajectory. I mean, I mean, to to join the police force like that, and then when you were a young young boy, uh, you and your brother James were at home when a burglar broke into your house. Can can you give us a bit of detail of what happened that evening? Yeah, in when I was a senior in high school, yeah. the there was a a robber and rapist who the press had dubbed the Ramsey rapist, a serial attacker, kicked in the front door of my parents' one-story home in New Jersey. And the police said, apparently looking for my sister, who thank God wasn't there, and found me and my brother and held us captive that night and threatened to kill us. And we escaped. And then he said he was going to kill us again. And we escaped again. It was a wild and terrifying night. And um, had left a lasting impression on me, as you might imagine. You so you were what age? What age were you at that point, James? And and for how long did I was seventeen? So I was senior in high school okay. last year before university. Uh, what did that do to you in the short term? You know, I I'm an unreliable narrator about myself. I think, but at least consciously, it didn't steer me into law enforcement. Although it seems obvious now, given my family and that experience, but it made me. It made me grow up in a lot of ways very, very quickly. And when I became an investigator and a prosecutor, it made me much, much better at understanding the pain of victims uh, because I I had only gone through a very small piece of what women who were sexually assaulted by this guy experienced, but I could feel enough of that pain that it made me better at my job. You, you also have strong thoughts, as most right-minded people do, about bullies. Were you bullied as a, as a youngster? I mean, you've, we've talked about your height. Maybe that was a, a factor. But what, what was what was happening in that regard? I was, I, especially because we moved from Yonkers, New York, to just across the Hudson River when I was a kid. And I thought I was moving to another country. And I stuck out. I had a bit of an, a New York accent that the New Jersey kids didn't. And I was... I had very big feet and a very big mouth, but not a big body at that point in my life. And so I would always have some clever quip that the bullies were confused by and probably infuriated by. And so I dealt with a lot of it in during my grade school years. And that's something that stayed with me. I've, I've always thought of like the mafia as among the biggest bullies there are. And I, I took a lot of satisfaction in putting those bullies away. The, 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 the mafia families that you were dealing with um, were, uh, how would you describe them? Because I know you've talked in the past about the Godfather film and the effect that might have even had, and the, the book obviously, might have had on a certain generation of mafioso families and how once upon a time they might have been discreet in their violence and then they became more effete, if you like, more uh, peacockery uh, with it all. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that and what drove you to, you've alluded to a little bit, but dro- what drove you to really go for it and, and, and take them down? Those, the, so the New York Italian organized crime, La Cosa Nostra, the five families 
were really shaped by art in an odd odd way because the the US mafia stopped inducting new members in 1957 because the bosses of the major families thought they were losing control of who was getting in and they didn't take any new members again until 1975 when at that point each of the five families could make 10 members and so what that meant was from 1957 to 1975 there was an entire generation of really bad people who could not get on the inside. Well, the Godfather landed in 1972 in the States and shaped those people because the Godfather wasn't, in, in many ways it was accurate, but in many ways it depicted La Cosa Nostra in a way different from reality. But the mobsters who couldn't get it on the inside saw the movie and thought, in fact, one of them explained to me, he remembered the day he walked out of the theater and he said, the light hit my face on 18th Avenue in Brooklyn, and I thought, that's the life. Mm. And so they started talking that way and imitating the dress and the cadence of those characters. And then when they were finally able to get into the mafia, those Hollywood-shaped hoodlums reshaped Cosa Nostra and its culture a bit and made it much more prominent. You know, John Gotti used to wear $5,000 suits and march up and down the street and get his hair cut every day. And... And that they were shaped by Hollywood. And, of course, what, what successive mobsters have realized is that's really dumb because you stand up and down in a $5,000 suit and get your hair cut every day. The mm -hmm. FBI is going to put your picture at the top of a bulletin board and your future is going to be limited. And so over the last 10, 20 years, they've gotten much more clever and realized that fame is a recipe for a long jail sentence. It's, it's like you're describing, if you keep the movie analogy going, the, the, the transition from God, the Godfather to Goodfellas, which, of course, was, you know, yes. they, they became, as you say, ostentatious with it. And what was it like for you uh, to, 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 to confront these guys in the courtroom? Um, and were you confident you could take them down? And the feeling of ultimately listening to verdicts being read out? Um, it was surreal to deal with these characters in a courtroom because they really do tell themselves that they're a uomo d'onore, a man of honor, and that they live by a code. And of course, it's all nonsense. I mean, the the, the code is broken as often as it's as it's followed. But they they try to convince themselves and you, as the prosecutor, that that we are both noble warriors, just on different sides. And so there's a certain honor to the conflict. And look, I didn't mind that because that meant they weren't going to try to kill me. They saw me as a as an honorable opponent. So there was that weird dance, but seemed almost oddly civilized in the courtroom. Mm. I had a mafia hitman once pass me a note congratulating me on receiving an honor from the New York City Bar Association and saying that it, he, he read of it and it's well-deserved and signing his name. And that's insane because I was trying to put him in jail for the rest of his life. Uh, the presenting the case is very difficult, in these, in, especially against the high-level mobsters, because it turns on getting other really bad people to become witnesses to testify against up the chain against senior people. And that's a dangerous dance because obviously using criminals to get criminals risks the integrity of the prosecution because these senior mobsters are only alive because they're wily and have become really good liars, frankly. And so using them in the, in the pursuit of justice is a fraught enterprise. But look, it's very, very satisfying because these people 
although glorified in a lot of our media, even in a Goodfellas, which shows the darker side better than the Godfather, these people are people who just terrorized innocent people. They're the mm. bullies that made you walk a different way in the schoolyard mm. on the scale of a city. And so honest business people trying to run a butcher shop or trying to run a carpentry business are terrified by these people. And to relieve that burden from those people is what made it fulfilling to be a prosecutor. Um, when you got to the top of the FBI, James Comey, um, how did that make you feel? I'm, I'm thinking of the young lad who was mocked at school or the young fella who was, you know, held at gunpoint uh, by the Ramsey rapist. Uh, now you hit the top. Um, tell me about that achievement in for you as a son, as a father, as a brother. It was both a thrill and a source of... Um the imposter complex, feeling like, okay. what am I doing here? A kid who used to wear uh, you know, white socks with black shoes and get mocked for it. <laughs> and so I think that's a healthy balance that I was both excited to be there and wondered why on earth President Obama would want me to do it. But I, I loved the work. that, And the best part of the work was the people of that organization who are just fundamentally good people trying to do something to serve their their country and to help protect innocent people. I, I loved being with them, but I, I never quite lost that sense when I would walk into a room and they would stand up. When I came in, I'd think, why are they standing up? It's just me. But they were standing up for the role. And once I realized that, some of the discomfort went away. It wasn't about me. It was about their respect for the hierarchy reflected in the director's office. And when Barack Obama called you in and said, uh, I just want to have a quick conversation with you before you got you got the nod. Did he call you in for that, for that first time to say congratulations or do you think he wanted to look in the whites of your eyes? I think probably uh, a little bit looking me in the whites of my eyes to get to know me better. And also I think, I know I had, I think he did, enjoyed our first conversation and he knew that once he nominated me to be the FBI director, he would never speak to me again personally okay. because it's been a tradition in America for the last 50 years as a result of the some of the excesses of the first 50 years of the FBI when J. Edgar Hoover led the organization. It's been a long tradition that presidents keep a certain distance from FBI directors so that the FBI doesn't become political. It's, it's apart from the political power in the presidency. And so President Obama was explicit about that and said, once I name you, you and I will never speak like this again. Former FBI Director James Comey speaking to Ryan Tuberty today. Well, that's all we have time for on Playback Daily. From me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.